Welcome back to the podcast. If you're here, I appreciate you listening. Hopefully this one will be informative and fun. This is the second episode in a series I've titled Things Forgotten. These are things that I've run into during the course of my life that I remember. Oh, I used to know that, but I haven't thought about it in a long time. Or things that I've run across that I've not heard or not seen referenced in news or heard somebody mention in passing conversation in a long time. So this things remembered, things forgotten. In January 1999, about a million years ago now, Times published an article wherein it was detailed that there may be a flaw in computer programs that used the year as part of their calculations or as part of the work that the computer program did. There was some concern that once the year rolled past 1999, and went back to zero again. The computers would not be able to discern the difference between the year 2000 and the year 1900. And over the course of 1999, as time crept closer and closer to from January to December, more and more of these articles were published and you started hearing people talking about it on the radio and you started hearing people talking about it on news, reading it in the newspapers. There was concerns of airplanes falling out of the sky mid-flight. Paper machines shutting down. Banks unable to process transactions. Power stations grumbling to a groaning, smoky, hot, steamy halt. Cars not starting. Gas pumps not working. Debit cards failing transactions. Anything that you can imagine that had a computer in it was going to fail when the new century rolled around. Now, things were much different as they always are in the past from the way that they are in the present. Today, it's very hard in this country to... To walk very far away from something that doesn't have some sort of microprocessor in it. If you live in a neighborhood, even getting away from your house and going outside and having to walk, you're always within just a stone's throw of another house full of electronics. And every piece of electronics is composed of little small transistors and circuit boards. It would take you a very concerted effort to get far enough away out into the country to escape the the slight buzz of electronics. And even still, you're not going to be too far away from a cell tower unless you live way out there and get way far away from any city or town in your area. Even then, you more than likely are going to get there in a vehicle 
and vehicles these days are chock full of electronics. Electronics drive your heated seats. They drive your adjustable seats. How many cars these days are even made anymore that have an actual mechanical interface between the gas pedal and what used to be the carburetor? I doubt there's any anymore. They're all fly-by-wire. And this is a relatively new creation. Cars used to be driven. Engines on cars used to be governed by something called a carburetor. And there used to be a piece of steel cable that attached your gas pedal to the butterfly valve on the carburetor. The further you pushed your gas pedal, the further the butterfly, butterfly valve would open, which would let more air into the carburetor which would mix with a little bit more fuel, which would accelerate the speed of the engine, which would turn the flywheel and the drivetrain faster, which would accelerate your car. So there was a a, a physical connection between your foot and the thing that controlled the speed of the engine. Now, The gas pedal is pretty much just a pressure switch that's attached to some series of electronics that sends over a wire some signal to the electronic fuel injection on your car and the electronic timing mechanism. So all that stuff is governed by electronics now. It did not used to be that way, and it wasn't that long ago that it wasn't. Back to my original point. When computers were first born, memory was very, very expensive. Every single byte of information, whether it be using usable information, data, or code, executable code, was all run through stringent checks and wrung out to its absolute bare minimum that it needed to be. And I'm very much dumbing a lot of this stuff down. Data, everything had to be so small so that it consumed the least amount of memory possible because there just wasn't much there. Now, you almost don't even have to think about this anymore when you're writing software because we have... 64-bit operating systems and most computers are coming with a quarter of a terabyte of hard drive space and 16 gigabytes of memory. Memory used to be memory used to be defined in terms of kilobytes and that's all you got. Anyway, for, for the reasons of efficiency early developers used a two-digit year. And in the 60s, when a majority of the the large legacy systems were being born, and by legacy, I mean these monolithic systems that made their way into banking and into finance and into insurance. When those were being born in the 60s, This was cutting-edge technology then. I mean, we were going from paper 
and all these manual transactions where if you're, if you're going to make a bank transaction, I'm guessing here, if you're going to make a, transa- a bank transaction back in the 60s, you had to go to the bank, walk in there, stand in front of somebody, tell them you want to deposit some money. They would write a deposit slip. That deposit slip would get bundled up with a bunch of other deposit slips at the end of the day. Somebody or some group of somebodies would have to sit there and go through all the deposit slips and they had some sort of ledger that understood what your account balance was the previous day, minus all the transactions that had had occurred since then. They would go through all these deposit slips and withdraw slips and balance your account. This may be an interesting topic to do, to do some research in because I'm, I, I, I did not exist in a time where there was not computers for banks to do their their transaction processing with. I'm curious now really about the ins and outs of how that works. So I'm just guessing here. So that was the process. And then once they got done with everybody's individual transactions, they would start working on the bank's accounts. Maybe do all the personal accounts, then do all the business accounts. Imagine how long this took. Then once they got done doing all those, then they would go reconcile all those things against the bank's accounts. So then at the end of the next day, maybe have no idea. Think about that. If you're a small rural bank before computers existed and you had 400 customers and half of them came in that day and withdrew some money and the other half made some deposits, what would you have to go through at the at the end of the banking day at the close of business to reconcile everybody's personal accounts against the stash of money that the bank kept as its own account. That's interesting to think about. Well, so computers came along and I've wandered off my topic. I'm going to have to try to find my way back to it now. And they handled all this automatically, quote unquote. They would keep a record a running record of all the withdrawals and a running record of all the deposits and all the ru- a running record of, of transactions or transfers from account to account, as well as when people brought money from other banks to bring to this bank. And this bank was making its own transactions. I mean, it seems like there's this whole turtle standing on a turtle relationship of all these things. So when they closed the business day, the computer would start churning through all the transactions that occurred and reconcile all these things. And it maybe took something that could possibly have taken 10 people all night to do and ran that into two or three hours, maybe for a small bank an hour. I don't know, but those systems are the ones that were created early on in the sixties. They evolved over time. Uh, People would have an idea for writing a, a banking, a piece of banking software. They would create it. They would sell it. Another company that also had some more that was just a little bit bigger would buy it and start incorporating it into their suite of software. And this just kept growing and growing and growing. Also cogent to to this discussion is that this isn't software that you would run on your personal computer. This stuff typically would run on mainframe computers because back then, if you were an institution, if if you were going to invest 
the money, which was extraordinarily expensive, as was the hardware, into developing some software. It was it was a large investment. And so you were looking 10 or 12, maybe 20 years into the future to recognize the return on that investment. So and and also you have to think that this was before people had P, there was no such thing as a PC which stands for personal computer. There were no personal computers back then. Everything was run on a mainframe. So this software that we're talking about that had this Y2K flaw in it was developed for large institutions. There's the point I'm trying to get to. It, it, it wasn't for consumers. There were no consumer software back then. <laughs> consumer software back then was written by hobbyists on machines that they built by hand or bought, from a, bought as a kit and put together themselves. So this flaw made its way sort of just naturally through the growth of what was a fantastic invention into a lot of very large institutions over time. And then all of a sudden, 1999 rolls around and developers and product managers started thinking about, wait a second, the little piece of storage that holds the year is only two bytes. It can only hold two numbers. From 1960 to 1999, 39 years, that was a long time and a lot of things happened and the computer industry sort of took a lot of people by surprise in that it lasted and that it sort of promulgated itself into so many industries and people realized as they had exposure to it, its value. Manufacturing, again, banking, finance, insurance, health, government in so many different aspects. And if you take the example that I made of the reconciliation process that people were doing over long hours, that was replaced by a couple hours worth of computing time on a mainframe system, you could see that folks back then recognized, hey, this is this is the future. <laughs> but they didn't think 40 years in the future. They only thought 39 years into the future. Well, so we get to creeping up on the 40th year and they're like, well, now what do we do about this? So what happens is the software assumed that there was always a two-digit year. And that we were always in the 1900s, the 20th century. What happens when it goes to the 21st century? Will the computer understand that 99, well, that 01 is not 1901? Will it, will it get that that's really 2001? What does that matter? All right, let's dig into that. Let's say that you wrote a check. December 31st, 1999. And during the reconciliation process at the end of the day, the software determines that you overdrafted your checking account. 
I don't remember what overdraft fees were back then. They were probably $15, $20, which was a ginormous amount of money back in the days for making a mistake with your checking account. When you go to the bank, January 2nd, whatever that following Monday would have been, there was a very real possibility that the teller would open your account and see that you wrote a check in December of 1900, December 31st, 1900, which caused your account to be overdrafted. And so instead of $30 overdraft fee, you now have 101 years worth of penalties associated with an unpaid overdraft fee. That was the real concern. Power bills, the same way. People were afraid that once they got their January 2000 bill, it would really be a bill worth January of 1900 to December of 2000 worth of (laughs) power bills. And this happened in a few places. People wound up with ridiculous water bills. Now, here it is, January 2023. And obviously, well, in this dimension, in this universe, we survived it. There may be other dimensions and other universes where it caused nuclear wars, Holocaust, famines, and the world as we know it ended. I don't know. I don't live in one of those realities. I I live in this one. This one we survived. So this story has a happy ending. Turns out it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be because people spent a lot of money, 1999, rewriting some of their systems so that they could account for the Y2K bug. On April 15th, 2013, during the Boston Marathon, two terrorists who were brothers, I won't mention their names, planted two homemade bombs that they built out of pressure cookers and easily obtained materials. Bombs went off near the finish line, killed three people, and injured hundreds of others. I can still see the pictures, the first responders and other race participants, bystanders trying to help out the wounded. It was absolute carnage. It was horrible. After they were arrested, they claimed that they were self-radicalized. They learned to build the explosive devices from an online magazine, which came from Al-Qaeda. They had plans to go to New York, recreate that scenario there. This story is cogent because I would like to make the point that you never know 
what you don't know. It's always best to be aware of your surroundings and the people that are sharing those surroundings with you. Keep your head on a swivel, as they say. And I think this is a cogent topic because just yesterday, the 27th, January 27th, 2023, the Memphis Police Department chose to release footage of a black male, I believe his name was Tyree Nichols, that they pulled over for reckless driving, as we understand it at the moment, and wound up tasing him, pepper spraying him, kicking him and beating him. And he went on to expire at the hospital. Well, why would they release this video on a Friday night before a weekend? I have no idea. But it leaves us as citizens to recollect how many times riots have occurred as a result of police brutality against citizens. And I hope that that doesn't happen in this case, but if you're out and about, be especially careful this weekend. And anytime you're out with a large crowd of people, because when people are in a crowd, there's this thing called herd mentality. They sort of turn into a collective. People tend to absolve a little bit of their individuality and personal responsibility for their own safety and well-being when they're in a crowd of people because if everybody else is calm and collective and not screaming and running away then there's no reason to not be calm and collective and not scream and run away that's just my opinion and I'm sticking to it continuing on in this terrible vein it gets better let me get this one out of my system During the month of October in 2002, throughout the Washington area, 10 people were killed and three others critically wounded. There were two people, one was 41 at the time, the other was 17 at the time, who traveled there amidst a crime spree, which included murders and robberies in several states. These were the DC sniper attacks. And these cats literally set up beside the road and sniped people in their cars. This caused a great deal of panic because this could really happen anywhere. Like so many of these horrible things that occurred, they, they happen somewhere, right? And then you say, oh, that could happen anywhere. Well, it did happen anywhere. It just happened to maybe not necessarily happen where you are or somewhere that people that you're close to are. But this was a horrible thing for some people. And people lost their lives. An interesting aside to this story. The older dude was sentenced to death. 
the young guy who was a juvenile at the time was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences without parole. Surprisingly, the older one was executed by lethal injection in 2009. Here's where this story has a little bit of interesting twist to it. And I'm going to read directly from Wikipedia here. In 2017, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit vacated the youngster's three life sentences without parole in Virginia on appeal, with resentencing ordered pursuant to the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Miller v. Alabama, which held that mandatory life sentences for juvenile criminals without possibility of parole violated the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court granted certiorari with oral arguments held on October 16, 2019. Should he be resentenced, his minimum prison sentence will be determined by a judge. The available maximum sentence would be life imprisonment. The ruling does not apply to the six life sentences that he received in Maryland. On February 25, 2020, after the passage of a Virginia law allowing those who are serving life sentences for offenses committed before the age of 18 to seek release after serving 20 years, the U.S. Supreme Court case was dismissed at the request of lawyers on both sides. I do not understand the justice system sometimes. Sometimes it just makes absolutely no sense. A life sentence sometimes does not necessarily work out to be the rest of your life, which is confusing, but maybe I'm just a shallow person onto lighter topics. May 28, 2016, a three might have been a four year old boy climbed into a gorilla enclosure at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens. And there's some grainy old potato footage of the event out there. And it's not 100% clear what the gorilla was doing with the child. You could either take it as he was trying to drag him to safety maybe trying to protect him from other gorillas or maybe try to drown him. It's very hard to draw an accurate conclusion. This gorilla's name was Harambe. And maybe that name rings the bell. He was a 17 year old lowland gorilla, which was born in captivity. The zookeepers made a split second decision. They killed Harambe with a rifle and this spawned a meme which gained a lot of popularity on the internet in support of Harambe. They felt that it was unjustified that the zookeepers chose to end his life. They had, well, from the perspective of an armchair quarterback, they had less lethal options available but in reading their their reports post 
event, it seems that they did give it some clear thought. If they would have used a tranquilizer dart or something like that, there's a possibility that number one, they might have missed with the dart and it hit and possibly it did or would not take effect in enough time to save the child's life before the gorilla changed its mind or made up its mind as to what it was going to do with the, with the boy. With a, with a lethal round, so to speak, they could guarantee that the child would be removed from danger as quickly as possible. Well, the animal rights people went wild over this and a lot of memes found their way around the internet and it turned into a, a rather popular story that, that gained more legs and, and more traction than maybe it really would have had had folks not felt bad for Harambe. It's kind of surprising that the attention it garnered because it seems like everybody forgets that that gorilla could have ripped that little kid apart. In 2012, there was another another meme that went around the internet called Coney 2012. And I remember hearing people talking about it and seeing it, but I never really stopped to dig too far into it. I think I was probably busy working or something like that. I'm not 100% sure whether the, the meme was generated by or resulted in a film by a nonprofit which was called The Invisible Children. And the way this all worked out was actually very creative. Joseph Coney, and I believe he's still around, is a Central African warlord. And he's responsible by UNICEF's count for abducting tens of thousands of children to enslave them, use them as soldiers, and for displacing more than 2.5 million people throughout the region that he governed. And the purpose of this, this meme and this movie was to bring attention to this guy and what he was doing. Now, this is a topic that's still very much alive in what we consider this modern world. And it's, it's very hard for me, a citizen of a first world country, to imagine that not only is this dude capable of doing something like that, but he's capable of doing something like that over decades and I'm sure that there's probably quite a few films and docu documentaries out there about this child enslavement in third world countries uh, but it's a man that's a tough top topic for me to consider but they did bring a lot of um, exposure to the situation and uh, I believe Oprah Winfrey got caught a whiff of it at some point and 
reposted something or maybe talked about it on one of her shows and it, it gained a lot more traction at the time. Now, what the end of uh, Coney's story is, I do not know. But this is just another one of those little fragments of broken memories from a long time ago that popped up that I wanted to, to talk about today. Now, here we are in uh, s- somewhat of a post-COVID mentality in the world right now, even though I believe it's never going away. I also believe that it won't ever be as scary as it was when it was first released onto the unsuspecting world over there in Wuhan province. But back in 2014, something similar happened, which terrified me way more. March 23rd, 2014, the World Health Organization reported cases of the Ebola virus in southeastern Guinea. Now, Ebola is one of those zombie movie type viruses. Ebola causes inflammation and severe tissue damage in the body and (laughs) results in internal bleeding throwing up blood, red spots, bleeding eyes, bleeding nose. It's just a terrifying, terrifying virus. And it's so very easily spread. This is one of those viruses where when somebody has it, they lock them in a clear plastic bubble. And anybody that gets within 30 yards of them has to be immediately burned. But I remember I lived not too far away from Atlanta and the Center for Disease Control is headquartered here in Atlanta. And I distinctly remember reading a newspaper article that said that they were going to put one or more of those Ebola patients on a plane and bring them to Atlanta. And that was absolutely terrifying. That Ebola scare lasted quite a few months during 2014. Fortunately, it never really went anywhere. So in spite of the frankly piss poor CDC response and government response and leadership response to the whoop flu, I can appreciate that the CDC for this particular outbreak uh, was able to successfully contain it so props to you CDC for that there was a time not too long ago that people did not have cell phones well let me re- let me rephrase that there was a time not too long ago when people had cell phones but they weren't smartphones They would send and receive calls. They had contact lists. They would send and receive text. Some of them maybe were capable of sending gifts at best. 
before that, not too long, people didn't have cell phones at all. There were these things called pay phones that dotted the landscape. And people had pagers. This was the first sort of big telecommunication advance. And you could go to a cell phone or to a pay phone, put your quarter in there, dial somebody's beeper number, and you could beep them a message. You could use the keypad. That's why there's little letters on the keypad. Well, one of the reasons that the letters are there for some uses. You could send somebody a message. Hello, meet me such and such at such and such time. Um, why aren't you home yet? How's your day going? I love you, mom. Those kind of things. Or you could leave, send a phone number. And you'd sit there at the payphone for 10 or 15 minutes while they went and found a payphone and called your payphone from their payphone. Before pagers, there were just phones. People had phones in their houses. They had phones in their offices. They had payphones. And think about that now. If you wanted to meet your friends at the mall, which I often did back before pagers, you had to agree at school, hey, we're all going to be at this place at this time. And maybe before you left, you'd do a quick party call and make sure everybody was still on. But um, if you were going to be late, you could get left. I mean, your friends might wait for you for a little while. They may not. But, I mean, you had, you had to sort of plan your day out more precisely and communicate things to other people ahead of time or they were not going to happen. They're also, well, consider also that in the time before smartphones and GPS systems that normal people can use, GPS has been around a long time, but it was an expensive service to subscribe to. And the military had it because the United States citizens paid for it. And now it's become more popular, more prevalent, a lot cheaper. I wonder if a percentage of the phone bill that you pay to your cell phone provider goes to pay for the GPS services. That's an interesting question because somebody's got to pay for it unless Verizon's got their own GPS satellites up there. And that's an interesting thing to, to understand. If you don't understand how GPS works, it's it's cool technology and it's it's tricky technology. It has to be very, very, very precise or it doesn't work well. But anyway, now we can punch a location into our smartphone and not only will it tell us where it is and show us a map, it will give us turn by turn directions while we're moving at the stop sign. Make the next left. You are 2.4 miles from your destination on the right. I mean, that is amazing technology. Well, before we had GPS, there were only these things called paper maps. And if you live in California and you wanted to drive to Wyoming, you would go to a gas station or most welcome centers between states would have big maps for just about all 50 states that you could buy but you would break that unfold that big map 
plan your route out, break it out with a highlighter, and then you would have to pay attention while you were driving and kind of looking at the map square that you're, you're working your way through to what exit that you're going by and what the mile markers are so that you can go take that information and, and cross-reference on the map where you are. That was how people got around. Well, once you got off the interstate and into bigger cities, imagine how tedious it would be driving around in a big city with the traffic and the lights and the pedestrians and all the things going on. Maybe the the lighting isn't very good, so it's hard to see your map sometimes. And you can't always be looking down and looking up and looking down and looking up trying to figure out which turn to take next. They had these things called Mapsco. And a Mapsco was a book, a pretty thick book. Well, depending on what size city that it represented. But as soon as you started getting close to city limits, you would stop and get yourself a Mapsco for that city. And where the big paper maps would fold out into these giant 4x4 cubes, Mapsco would take a few blocks and sort of blow it up on one page. It also had an index in it of popular businesses. And it would tell you, you know, there's four McDonald's on page 56, grid square A5. And so you would work your way to that area of town, then go find page 56, and it would kind of give you an expanded view of the streets and the businesses in that location. And that's how you navigated around inside a city. And people still managed to make it where they were going back then, somehow, with those old-fashioned paper maps. But I still... I still catch myself when I'm on a trip somewhere and I stop at a gas station checking to see if if they still have that little spinning rack with maps on it. And uh, you, you don't see them very often. Every once in a while, I, I do see them. Um, more prevalent are spinning racks full of postcards. But uh, that used to be that used to be a big thing. And, and glove boxes. Really, if you ask somebody older than 50, what, what, what's your glove box for? They'll tell you, well, you put your maps in there. 